The scripture reading this morning is Romans 15, verses 14 through 21. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God, be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. Thanks, Aaron. Um, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, um, thank you for being with your people. Uh, Father, uh, even a pandemic can't keep you away from us. Uh, Lord, Holy Spirit, you indwell us, you enfold us, you keep us. And uh, Lord Jesus, you said you will never leave or, or forsake us. And so our, our beautiful triune God, we're grateful that you walk with us um, through whatever we face. And so uh, Lord, praise you. Thank you for caring that way for your people. And Father, thank you for caring for Jeannie and uh, for a good diagnosis and hopefully a good plan of, uh, of treatment for her. Thank you for stopping the bleeding. And uh, we just pray that you would continue to, to uh, knit her together, strengthen her and uh, help her to uh, not only enjoy you, but Lord, to model for us a life spent enjoying you. And so uh, thank you for our sister and, and for her um, restored health. We pray that you continue to strengthen her and uh, pray for the Cromery family as they care for her, that you would uh, show them the blessing of pouring out love for someone else, um, just as you poured out your love for us. Father, we want to pray for Bob and Vicki as Bob is still away. Um, pray for his ministry and for the work that he's doing. I pray that his teaching is landing and, and taking root and will be beneficial to the pastors he's with. We pray for Vicki as she's um, dealing with holding down the fort while Bob's out of town. Would you be with her and, and um, lead her and guide her? Uh, thank you for her children being around, and I pray that she would find plenty of support where she needs it. And uh, Lord, we want to pray again for our nation. Um, there's a, a spring is coming and we're feeling a bit of hope that the, uh, the pandemic is waning, is hopefully beginning to, to fade. Uh, some people have described it and we're on the 10 yard line. So we're, we're close to a touchdown. So Father, thank you for that grace. And uh, Lord, I just pray that what you did by bringing this pandemic on the world uh, would bear fruit, Lord, that we would see what it is your purpose was. Uh, Father, I pray that your purpose was to wake people up, to snap us out of our, our comfort and our lethargy, 
And Lord, to see that we are in need, we are fragile creatures. We're not as indestructible as we come to think we are. And Lord, I pray that you would use that realization to spread your gospel. May your church around the globe be faithful to share the gospel, to call people to repentance. And Lord, especially in our nation, and Lord, especially in our valley, would you bring revival? Would you bring, Holy Spirit, uh, a widespread conviction of the need for Jesus Christ and shed forth hope and faith in Jesus? And Lord, I pray that your church throughout the valley would be faithful with that message and, and would handle the harvest that you will bring in well to your glory and to your, um, to your name, not to our own uh, magnifying our own ministry. Um, Lord, have mercy on us. And I pray that you'd even begin in our little church. Lord, would you send a fresh uh, outpouring of your Holy Spirit on us, renew our faith, strengthen our faith, cause us to remember things in scripture we, we haven't read in a while, to uh, find ways to uh, care for each other, to do the things, Lord, that you've called us to do as new creatures in Christ. And so, Lord, to that end, we pray that you would use the word as we hear it this morning in our lives, in our hearts, and, uh, and change us. Lord, conform us as he predestined us, conform us to the image of Christ. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. So um, where we're at now in the book of, Re of Revelation, <laughs> I was talking with Kyle Crumry about the book of Revelation, so it's now in my head. Uh, where we're at in the book of Romans uh, is uh, we're kind of moving into the home stretch on this. We're, Paul has kind of transitioned from uh, the first part was largely doctrinal, then he got practical, and now he's getting personal. It's, it's about, he talks about himself a bit more and uh, mentions some of the people in Rome that he knows and that kind of thing. So it, it's moving into that home, home portion of the, the, um, the book. Um, but before we dig into the verses that we're going to look at today, um, I need to do a little bit of work preparing us because when we get there, I don't want to stop and try to have to explain some, some of these verses. So I want to explain two things before we start into the text. Um, there are two confusing phrases in this section that need some work. And one of them, both of them are from chapter or verse 16. But the first one I want to look at, because it'll help us understand the second one, is the phrase, the offering of the Gentiles. Um, there's two ways that this has been understood. There's three possible ways, but there's two ways largely that it has been understood. Uh, the one that nobody seems to adopt is the offering of the Gentiles could be the offering that the Gentiles make. It's the offering that they're, they're giving. But nobody seems to take that one. The other one, it, it, it's a very slight difference, but I think it makes it has impact. And so one way of reading the offering of the Gentiles is to see it as Paul's act of making the offering. And so the New American Standard, uh, the way it translates that verse is it says, so that my offering of the Gentiles, and they put my in italics, which means it's a, an, an English word inserted to make this phrase make sense. But what they've decided is that that offering is Paul's action. Paul is offering the Gentiles. The other way that you can read it, and this is the way that almost all the other translations read it, most of them do, is that the Gentiles are the offering. So, for example, the New American Standard translates it so that the Gentiles might become an offering. Um, so why on earth does the ESV translate it the offering of the Gentiles, which could go either way? It's because that's what the Greek says. What we have to make a decision on is when we run into something that can be confusing like that is, well, which one is it? How, how did Paul intend it? 
Um, so with some of the translations, in order to make that a little bit more readable, they'll, they'll make the decision for you. So the NIV made the decision. My argument is the right one, but they made the decision that the Gentiles are the offering and they translate it that way. So um, just be aware, it, it, if you read a more literal version of the Bible, you're going to run into difficult questions like that. So that kind of raises the question then, how did I determine that it is the offering of the Gentiles? The Gentiles are the ones being offered. Um, first of all, you know, I'm always heading towards context. What is the context this is in? And just in the, the fairly immediate context, Paul has already said something that I think sheds lights on, on this. Uh, Romans 12, the very first verse says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. So in the context, Paul is not saying, I'm offering your bodies. He's saying, offer your bodies. Your bodies is what is being offered. We'll understand what that means in a little bit, but that makes me inclined toward it's not Paul is not talking about his action of offering, but rather the, the Gentiles as the offering. Um, so the, where he goes with it is he says so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. Um, he is wanting the Gentiles themselves to be acceptable, not he is wanting his work to be acceptable. His work is acceptable, but not in the same kind of way. And then the other thing that he says right there in, in the context of verse 16 is that they would be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul's ministry, his work is spiritual. He, he refers to it as a spiritual endeavor. Um, he is not saying that his work is not spiritual or, whole, or holy, but that word sanctified is something that he has used to explain people, not his actions. And, and that comes from um, chapter 6, verse 19. Paul said there, for just as you once presented your members slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, needing, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So that just sounds a lot like what he's telling them to do in chapter 12, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That seems to me to be him saying what he's saying here in verse 16 is the Gentiles are the offering. So that, that's kind of where I'm getting that. Um, uh, the commentator, uh, John Murray, also made an interesting point. This sounds a lot like Isaiah 66.20. So in Isaiah 66.20, the context is the nations coming in. Uh, the, the, the broader context where he's talking about all these different languages that are being spoken. Verse 20 says, And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. And so maybe the thought is maybe that's kind of what Paul is talking about, the nations as an offering to the Lord. And so I understand that phrase, the offering of the Gentiles is the Gentiles are being offered. They are the thing that is being, being given to God. Um, and this, well, if that's right, then that'll help us understand the next phrase that can be a little confusing as well. Same thing, verse 16, Paul says, the priestly service of the gospel of God. So what is the priestly service of the gospel of God? Um, perhaps in the past you've heard people use the, uh, the explanation, the prophet stood between, or stood, or I'm sorry, the prophet represented God to man. He brings a message, thus saith the Lord. So he represents God to man. The priest does the opposite way. He represents man to God. Um, and that's not bad, but it's not, it's not exhaustive enough. There's, there's more going on there. 
For example, one of the charges to the priests was not just bring the sacrifice in, but the priests were also charged, you have to teach the people about the law. And so that's, that's not quite exactly the same direction. So the way I was thinking about this, I, I think this helps is the priest stands at the, as that mediator between God and man. So imagine for a moment, um, you're in Israel in the second century or the first century um, BC, and you say, I want to offer, I want to bring an offering to God. And so you have a flock of thousands of sheep and you go out and you take one of those sheep and you say, this is what I'm going to offer to God. And so you take that sheep and you put it on your shoulders and you march up to Jerusalem and you go into the temple and you offer this sheep. You bring the sheep to the priest and the priest examines the sheep and says, this is an acceptable sacrifice and then offers it. At what point in that process did that sheep become holy? Was it when it was in your flock of thousands? No, it was common. Did it become holy when you said, this is the one I'm going to offer? No, I mean, it's holy to you in, in, in that you have set it aside for a purpose, but it doesn't become holy to God till at that point. It's not holy to God as you're marching up to Jerusalem. It's not holy to God in, when you walk in the temple. It's holy to God when the priest takes the offering that you offer and says, this is a sacrifice that will be given to God and then offers it. So the same could then be said of the grain offering. You've got acres and acres of grain. Is that holy? It's not. When you reap it, you bring it in, it's not holy. When you take a basket of it and walk to Jerusalem, it's not holy. It's not holy until it's presented to God. Uh, so I think a better way to understand this would be to say that the priest would take what was common and make it holy to God. He, he was in this intermediate state where he was going to take, take from the common and, and through his ministry, through his work, would make something holy to God. Um, so if that's a, an, a correct understanding, if that's another way to look at it, then perhaps that's what Paul means when he talks about the, the priestly service of the gospel of God, is the gospel of God is taking something that's chosen, that's amongst common, the Gentiles in this case, is taking something that's chosen and bringing it to God and making it holy. But the way that Paul does that is not through the sacrifice, the sacrifice was done, but instead is taking what God has chosen and bringing it to him through the ministry of the gospel. By preaching the gospel to this person, then the person hears, the person believes, the person is justified, and they begin the process of being sanctified, being made holy. And so that is possibly, uh, that's, that's, I think, a, another way to understand the priestly ministry or service of the gospel of God is the gospel of God takes what is common and translates it into something that is holy and, and acceptable to God. So um, if that those definitions are right, then hopefully when we get to chapter or verse 16, it'll help us to understand that. Um, so, well, real quick, one of the things that Paul is doing in his ministry is he is sanctifying people, right? He's writing scriptures to them. He's encouraging and admonishing them to grow in Christ's likeness, to become more holy. So that's that's the thought there, is that is the priestly service of the gospel, is to, is to take something common and to make it holy. So with that in place, we don't have to fuss with that when we get there. So then what is this section about? Well, I, I, as I'm reading through this, what I see happening here is this is Paul's intentionality in his ministry. 
This is what Paul intends to do in his ministry. And, and so the title of the sermon, I suppose, could be Paul's intentionality in ministry and ours. Um, so uh, when you look at the way it breaks out, I think verses 14 in the first half of 15, uh, Paul is seeking to strengthen, him, strengthen an existing ministry. Um, it's a ministry he didn't do, but he's seeking to strengthen it. And then 15, the second half of 15 through 17, he talks about his current ministry. What is he actively involved in now? And then 18 through 21, that's his future plans for ministry, what he hopes to do. So what ministry he didn't do, but is helping in, a ministry he is doing and a ministry that he hopes to do. Um, so that's kind of the way that the story lays out, but um, that's kind of a nice history lesson. This all happened a couple of thousand years ago, so we have to ask the so what question. So, okay, that's what Paul did, but what does that have to do with us? Um, and that's not just me, by the way. I was a little paranoid that I'd made this so what question up and, and was being a little irreverent, but I'm reading a book I'm preaching by Brian Chappell, and he, he says, he has a section in there, you have to ask the so what question. Um, so I'm, I'm on good ground there. So, so what? We hear about Paul this way. Well, I think what you have to do is you have to look at what Paul is doing here and saying, is that something that we should be doing? Is, is, is he modeling something for us? Um, I, I would argue that Paul was the most significant missionary in the history of the church. Um, his, his, his work was, was truly significant. Uh, in 1912, a, a missionary who had returned from China named Roland Allen wrote a book, Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours. And in the introduction, he makes the case for Paul's significance. So listen to this, this brief quote. In a little more than 10 years, St. Paul established the church in four provinces of the empire, Galatia, Macedonia, Acacia, Achaia, and Asia. Before 47 AD, there were no churches in these, providence, in these provinces. In AD 57, St. Paul could speak as if his work there was done and could plan extensive tours in the far west without anxiety lest the church which he had founded should perish in his absence for want of guidance or support. This is truly an astonishing fact. Many missionaries in later days have received a larger number of converts than St. Paul. Many have preached over a wider area than he, but none have so established churches. Today, if a man ventures to suggest that there may be something in the methods of, by which St. Paul attained such wonderful results worthy of our careful of attention, and perhaps of our imitation, he is in danger of being accused of revolutionary tendencies. So what, what, what uh, Alan is saying is he's looking at what Paul did and he's saying, you know, there are people who had reached many more folks. Billy Graham probably preached to more individual human beings than St. Paul did. Um, there are people who've ranged across the globe. Um, Robbie Zacharias traveled all over the world speaking. Uh, but none of them, uh, what Alan says is none of them established churches the way that St. Paul did. Now, Alan's focus is on ministry, is on missionary methods, but um, I'm going to say we could broaden that a little bit. We could take that focus and broaden it out a little bit. So when we look at Paul's plans, his ministry, he didn't start what he's doing currently and what he hopes to do. What we can learn from that is we can learn some of his strategies, some of his, his uh, ways of approaching things. Would you like to be successful in ministry? 
would you want to have somebody model for you a way to be successful in ministry? Well, that's what I think Paul is doing for us here is, is he's showing us a way to be successful in ministry by pointing to how he has done it. Remember uh, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 11, he says, uh, be imitators of me as I uh, of Christ. So he calls people to imitate himself. And he's not saying there, it's not an exclusive call to become a missionary. He's saying, model yourself on my way of life as I follow Christ, where I don't, don't, but where I do, do. So when we look at this section this morning, what I want to point out is what Paul was thinking, how he processed this, and then in the end, bring that back to us and say, now, how can we use that? How, what can we gain from this? How can we learn to do ministry better from that? So the first section, uh, strengthening existing ministries. This is a ministry that Paul didn't do. So verses 14 and the first half of 15. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I've written to you rather boldly by way of reminder. So remember, we started the book of Romans. We said Paul had never been there. Uh, according to uh, chapter 1, verse 13, and next week, chapter 15, verse 22, Paul says, I have been prevented, prevented from visiting you. So Paul is talking to a ministry that he didn't personally found, one that he has never personally visited, and yet he can say, I myself am satisfied about you. I, I know that the ministry that's going on in Rome is a good one. It's a solid one. Now, how did he know that? He didn't have a Zoom call to, to dial into, you know, to determine how the church was doing. Well, he met people from Rome. So, for example, Acts 18, verse 2, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So he's, he's run into Aquila and Priscilla, and he comes to know them, and he's like, hey, that's, they're coming from a pretty solid church. Even though I didn't start it, it's a pretty solid church. So these are believers in Rome before Paul ever went there. Um, and he's satisfied with their growth in Christ. He says that you yourselves are full of goodness and filled with knowledge. Now, he's not saying that they're perfect. Those are, those are probably hyperbole to say about how they are overall very good people and filled with knowledge. They understand the scriptures really well. And not only that, they are, they are not only solid in their faith, but as a church, they're able to instruct one another. They're able to build the church internally. They're able to do that themselves. Now, Paul, he's not content to look and say, hey, Rome, that's a solid church. You guys rock on. Instead, verse 15, he says, but on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. I want to make sure that that church continues to be a strong, a solid church. And he reminds them of something he himself did not teach them. He, he reminds them, he writes the book of Romans to the Roman church to remind them of something that they had already known. And, and so that, that is a, a, an approach to ministry where Paul can demonstrate for us, he can look at another church, one that he isn't personally associated with, and praise them and say, they are doing good work. That, that's solid. And then turn to strengthen that church. He, he writes to them to encourage them to fill in their, their faith and their understanding to give them a greater insight into the doctrine of justification. So Paul's first approach to ministry, the first thing he wants us to see is it's not about you. 
It doesn't rest on you. Are you the one that's actually performing the ministry? And if not, then it's suspect or it's, it's, it's to be um, looked at with a, a jaundiced eye or something. He looks at what is going on and he praises when it's, when it's right. We'll understand why in this next section. So the next section is the second half of 15 through 17, Paul's present ministry, what he's doing. So this is what he says, um, kind of broke the sentence in half. Uh, he says, I've written to you um, very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. So um, John Piper, when I, I was reviewing his sermon on this, he points to verse 17, and he, his, his take is verse 17 is the point of this section. And he says that because he says everything else is used to support verse 17, and verse 17 supports nothing else. It stands on its own. So what Paul says there is in Jesus Christ, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Um, that, that is almost an alarming statement because Paul has told us earlier that the word for proud is boasting. I have reason to boast of my work for God. Now, earlier, Paul had said, hey, boasting is excluded. Um, there's no room for boasting. Boasting is a negative thing. So why can he say that here? Why does he say that, that this is a good thing for him to do now? He's looking toward his work, the work that he has done. Remember, he's um, on his way to Jerusalem. He hasn't come to Jerusalem to be arrested yet and then shipped off to Rome. He's on his way. He's at the end of his missionary journey throughout the Mediterranean. And so he can look back at what he's done. And he says, you know what? I am proud of the work that I've done. There are many churches where no church existed, as, as um, Alan pointed out at the beginning. In a span of 10 years, he established churches throughout that region. And so he can look at that and say, I'm proud of that work. I've, I've accomplished something there. But there's one key phrase that we have to keep in mind to understand how to have successful ministry. And that is, in Christ. In Christ Jesus, I have reason to be proud of my work. In other words, he's looking at his work and saying, I have labored, I have traveled, I have been shipwrecked, I have been beaten, I have been arrested, I've done all these things. I'm proud of that because it's work in Christ. It's not about me. So if I can just steal a quote from John Piper's new book, which I haven't read yet, but I'm stealing this, this quote from a friend. Um, this is how Piper says it. He says, when humans exalt themselves they call attention to something that can never satisfy the people they want to impress. They call attention to themselves. No mere human, no matter how exalted, can be the all-satisfying treasure of another human, nor is such satisfaction of others even a typical motive for self-exaltation. For humans, self-exaltation is typically a way of getting, not giving, using people, not serving them. So when Paul says, I am proud of this ministry, I boast in this ministry, that phrase in Christ changes the whole emphasis of it. If he's pointing to himself and saying, look at me, guys, look at what I've done. Um, is, aren't I great? You guys should all just think I'm wonderful. He doesn't do that. He says, in Christ, I have done these things. He knows that apart from Christ, he can do nothing. He's, he's useless. So that phrase modifies this, everything he says here about his present ministry. 
that he is doing it in Christ. And remember, it is the priestly service of the gospel. So when we hear that, are we looking at that and going, well, Paul was a priest, but I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I could never do anything like that. First Peter 2, 4, as you came to him, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's exactly what we just said. And what Peter does is Peter points it at you. You are a holy priesthood. You offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. And so that, that's the point of his current ministry. As he is behaving in a priestly manner, bringing that which is not holy to be holy to God, as he's preaching the gospel, as he offers the Gentiles to God, he brings them into the temple and offers them to God, he points away from himself. His present ministry, as wonderful and as successful it is, is as it is, he, he looks away from himself. This is what Christ is doing in me. In Christ, then, I have reason to be proud of my work. It, it's not his effort. It's not his work. It's what he's doing. And so the reason that we can look at this and say, well, that's nice, but it's not just a history lesson of what Paul did, is because we, too, are called into that same priestly ministry to offer spiritual sacrifices, our own bodies, to call other people in to the gospel. Um, and then we're, we're doing that through Jesus Christ. It's the work of God. So we're actually in that exact same boat that Paul is in. So what is your priestly ministry? What currently is your priestly service? What are you working on? Remember, we, we look at this and we say, well, Paul was, a, was a, a wonderful international ministry or missionary. And well, I'm just not called to do that. I don't think that exhausts everything that Paul is talking about here. He did, he did much more than just missions work. He wrote epistles. He taught in Tarsus or in uh, um, the Hall of Tyrannus for three years. So he stopped his missionary work traveling and instead formed a seminary. So it, it doesn't always have to be that. So what is your missionary? Or what is your priestly service? What service are you called to? Um, are you currently, chapter 14, verse 19, pursuing what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding? That, that would be a work of priestly service as you're making something common much more holy um, by making peace and mutual upbuilding. Or 15.2, are you pleasing your neighbor for his good and building him up? That building up is to, to draw people in to a, a more Christ-like life. And so these aren't just like hallmark thoughts that, that you can you know, put on a, on a wall and smile at. These are inspired commands you are supposed to be pursuing what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. This is Paul commands that. And Paul's inspired when he writes that. So God through Paul is commanding you, pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Please your neighbor for his good and building him up. That is, that is the role, that is the priestly office that you have been called to. That, that's part of what you could be doing. We'll talk a little bit more about what that might look like for individual people throughout the church. But don't forget, um, in verse 14, 20, Paul said, do not forsake or do not for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. So that other person, that neighbor that needs to be built up, that neighbor that needs to be encouraged, that neighbor that you need to be at peace with, they're the work of God. And, and the priest is called to never 
sully the work of God, not to come in the temple and rearrange it the way he feels like. So when these, when God tells us these things, these are commands that we have to obey. You're told to do that. So now let's take a look at Paul's future plans for ministry, ministry that he hopes to do. So it goes on in verse 18, I'll not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. I think that explains those other verses, the, the offering of the Gentiles, that kind of stuff, that his pride is in Christ. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on somebody else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told will see him, and those who have never heard will understand." So what Paul is looking at here is he, he's, he's counted what he's done. He kind of reminds us of what he's accomplished. He says, I won't speak of anything except for what Jesus did to, through me. So how much do we know about Paul's tent-making ministry? Pretty much nothing, except for the fact that he did it. That wasn't what he's drawing his attention to. What he's drawing his attention to is what has Jesus accomplished through me? That's what I've done. I have brought the Gentiles to obedience. I've gone into Athens and said, I see you have a lot of idols. I'm here to preach the one that you don't know. And he speaks of the resurrection. He, he, he goes to various places that are filled with idols and, and preaches Christ and brings the Gentiles to obedience. And he does it, he says, by word and deed. Um, you haven't preached the gospel if you haven't said the words. So the old uh, saying that's falsely attributed, attributed to uh, St. Francis, preach the gospel always and, and use words if you have to. Folks, you have to. <laughs> There's no preaching the gospel if you don't say the words. So Paul says he's done this by word and by deed. So he has, the people have seen what he has done for them. Um, our lives are part of the message of the gospel. They are not the gospel. Like I said, you have to say the words, but, but living a life that's in line with the message that you're preaching actually under, underscores it. it. It supports it. It makes it more appealing. It makes it more true than being the hypocrite that, that everybody says Christians are. He's done it by the, by the power of signs and wonders. Um, so does that mean we have to have a ministry of signs and wonders? Um, how do you do that? How do I'm, I'm looking for books that tell me how to start a ministry of signs and wonders. Uh, again, this is what Christ has accomplished through him. So when Christ wants to accomplish something by use of signs and wonders, Christ will do it. It's not something that we stir up or that we manufacture or if we just, you know, announce the name correctly or something. So the signs and wonders are God's work because that's what he says next, by the power of the Spirit of God. Um, so when we were in on missions trips, when we were in Burma, we saw God do signs and wonders. It was amazing. Brought healing to people in ways that we never expected. You know, we prayed for folks who, who were like in stretchers, and we prayed like we would if your child had the flu. You know, God, heal them. And God comes through with, with signs and wonders. So when he does it, he does it. And, and we don't get to regulate that. But Paul... His ministry, since it was so cutting edge, since it was so out there, often God would show up with signs and wonders. 
He could command a spirit to come out of a slave girl. Um, he, he would do all sorts of other things that would just ex unexplainable things. And that, that wasn't because he had this special office. It was because God was attending the work that he was doing with those powers. And so he talks, he sums up his, um, his missionary journey um, around the world. And he says, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So earlier he said that he had the, the priestly service, service and ministry are the same word, just translated in English different. He had, he had the priestly service of the gospel of God. And here he said, it's the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So are there two different gospels? Well, no, obviously not. It is God's gospel because it is what God has done in the world through Christ. And thus he makes it his ambition to preach the gospel. And this is where he's looking toward the future, not where Christ has already been named. So he, he, he covered the Mediterranean basin. He went all around the Mediterranean and he said, you know what? I've preached the gospel here. Christ has never been named in these places. I'm not going there. Notice he never went to Northern Africa. He didn't go to Northern Africa because when he was in Antioch, people from Cyprus and Cyrene came to the church at Antioch. Well, Cyprus is an island off Turkey. Cyrene is in what we would today call, um, not Liberia, um, Libya. Um, so he didn't go there because there were already believers there. He hasn't been to Rome yet because there's already believers there, but there weren't any in Galatia. So he, he's, he's seeing this as, as fresh ground, fertile ground for his opportunity to preach the gospel. And then he says, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Now, does that mean that Paul just wouldn't touch the church once it was planted, he was gone? Absolutely not. That, that was not part of his ministry because in Acts 15, 41, it says he went through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches. And 1823, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So he doesn't say, I'm never visiting a church once. I've only visited a church once. He goes through and he strengthens them. As a matter of fact, after he planted churches, he sent pastors there, Timothy and Titus, to different churches in order to strengthen them. So what does he mean then when he says, lest I build on somebody else's foundation? What he's doing is his his gift, his calling is a very sharp focus on that leading edge of ministry, on that leading edge where Christ has not been named. God has uniquely suited him to that and called him to that role. And so that's why he's looking past Rome to Spain. Uh, the gospel has not been preached in Spain. That's where I'm heading. That's where I'm going next. So when he says, lest I build on somebody else's foundation, he doesn't want to compete he doesn't want to go through and wrestle with somebody else who's already ministering in an area. He, he doesn't feel that there's a conflict between his ministry and somebody else's. He just wants to be out on, on the front edge there because that's what God has called him to do. And that's what God has blessed his ministry with. That's, that's what he's seen the most fruit with. So then he ends the, the uh, section, verse 21. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. He's looking to Isaiah 51. And he sees that as the definition of his own ministry. That, that's how he sees his ministry defined is by that verse. He applies it to himself. So his, his, his vision is to go where Christ has not been named. So let me draw all three of those together again and then begin to work on applying them for us. So first of all, what Paul didn't do, what the ministry he didn't do, 
So he's looking at an already existing church and he doesn't mistrust them or judge them or say, I wasn't personally involved, so you're suspicious. <clears throat> Instead, he looks and he says, this is the work of God. The work of God goes beyond just me and my little ministry. It's something that God has been doing around the world. So when we look at other churches, especially here in the Antelope Valley, what we can see is these are churches of Jesus Christ. If they're remaining faithful and true to the gospel, then they're churches of Jesus Christ. And we are not in competition. We are not trying to, to go in behind them and steal sheep or something like that. We can work in concert with them. That's what Paul did is he wrote to the church at Rome and said, here, let me strengthen you. How can I help? So when, when we're looking around the Antelope Valley, there are tons of churches, just bunches of them. Which ones can we work with? Which support? What ministries are they doing that we can come behind and support? How can we encourage them? Um, just uh, Thursday, I met with um, a man from Central Christian and a pastor from Grace Chapel. And we sat down to talk about a specific type of ministry that's going on. And there was no competition between the three of us me and two giant churches, and there's just no wrestling there. How can we do this? It was so great to see the three of us saying, well, we want to succeed in bringing the gospel to the Antelope Valley. How do we do that? How can we team up? There are strengths that small churches have that big churches don't. There are strengths that big churches have that small churches don't. How can we leverage all that for the gospel ministry? So if you want to be successful in ministry, if you want to see your work in the gospel succeed, Learning from Paul in this section, number one, don't mistrust other ministries until proven otherwise. Um, Dan sent me a, a, a link to a church that said that the Bible is not the word of God because it contains things that are really out of God's character. We're probably not going to be able to work together <laughs> um, because we believe the word is the word of God and that if it's in there, it's in his character, and we probably don't understand. So there's there's some lines here. There's some, some borders that we have to kind of surround this with. But can we work with other churches? How can we work with other churches? Our, uh, another opportunity that I'm hoping to expand is working with Pastor Miguel from Bibliologos to do some um, preaching cohorts with Hispanic preachers, with Spanish-speaking preachers. Um, there are opportunities for this where we can work together. So number one, that's that's one way to make your ministry successful is to, to, compare, to pair with others as you can. The second one, our, our ministry is a priestly one. So don't forget that. Don't forget that you are a priest in God's kingdom, which means you're not the central focus. You're not the most important person in the temple. When you walk into the temple, there is guaranteed every time somebody there greater than you, and that other person is God. That's who you're serving. As you bring in the offering into the temple, you're serving God. That's your ministry. That's how you do that. So we're mediators, taking that which is common, that's what's chosen, and making it holy. So keep your focus on the right things, not you. You're serving these people that you want to make more holy for the glory of God, and you're just kind of standing in the middle. Um, when you're doing that, when you're figuring out what role you have in that within the church body itself, remember, this is really important to remember that people are more than thinking things. They, they have more to them than just thinking. That's why ministry is not exclusively preaching and teaching. That's just the big one that we all see. But we have to do more than that. We have to think about 
What are the emotional needs of these folks? How can they grow not just intellectually to know Christ better, but emotionally to reflect Christ better? How can we help them love the things that God loves? That's your role as a priest within the church is to take people from outside the church and bring them in and build up the folks inside the church. And then finally, we have to recognize uh, when a work is sufficient and can stand on its own and be ready for the next type of service. That's what he says the last. So we don't want to be fickle and jump out of a ministry before the, the right time. But we don't want to be so rooted that we can't say, okay, well, it's time to press on from that. This, this ministry has now come to its fruit or fruition. It's come to fullness. And now it's time to move on to the next ministry. What's the next thing that, that I can be working on? Um, so we, we have a church to build, uh, but we also have a harvest to bring in. And so that's where we have to be watching how fruitful our ministry is. Um, I've worked in this for a while. Um, it's produced enough, a bunch of fruit. Am I done with that? Is, is that ministry over? And can now I move on to the next thing? Or if it's continuing to be fruitful, man, dig in and keep going. So th there's, there's, there's that realization we have to stop and look at it. So I think that's the, the model that Paul brings to us is um, it, it fits under the banner of 17. In Christ, I'm going to boast in the work that I've done. So you, you can take pride in, in, the offer, or in the work that you're doing within the church, how we're serving each other, what are we doing to help each other grow. You can take pride in that, provided it's in Christ, to recognize this is his ministry, this is his model, this is his work. And, and that's where we can reach for how can I minister to somebody else in this church, is don't be afraid of others, recognize your role is not the star, and be flexible. Um, you never know what the Lord might call you to. Um, the, the, the idea of a spiritual gift is not what you like doing necessarily, but what do other people see you doing that blesses them? That's the measurement. And when that changes, change with it. See what comes next. Let's pray. Lord, um, we do want to be successful in ministry, and we do want to build up the church, and we do want to um, have peace with each other to recognize, Lord, the saints that are here are your work. And so, Lord, would you show us how it is that we can mirror Paul's ministry and be successful in serving? Um, we want to be in that priestly office, that priestly role of standing in the middle but not getting in the way, of offering but not offering to ourselves. And so, Lord, would you show us what we can do, show us how we can do that? Lord, what are the needs within Trinity right now today that one of us could fill, that one of us on this call could fill in. And Lord, would you, by the power of the Spirit, convict us and equip us. And in you, Lord, may we fulfill that ministry. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.